0: Welcome everybody, it's been five months, can you believe, five months studying the revelation of Jesus Christ, and tonight is chapter 22, it's the last chapter in the revelation of Jesus Christ, so we're going to go into that in a minute, but also I want to say welcome to week three of Advent, it's week three of Advent, the cheers are deafening coming up from everybody. How many people here traditionally uh, observe Advent at home? Okay. Not many, and, and that's pretty much par for the course. Some people do. We all kind of have a vague knowledge of this Advent calendar. You open it up and you get a little treat in there, right? Advent, it's a, it's a Latin word, and it just means coming. Advent means coming, and it, and it means the coming of Christ. And it's appropriate that we talk about that as we go into Christmas. Christmas is the first coming of Christ. And we've been studying the book of Revelation, which culminates in the second coming of Christ. So it's very, very appropriate that we're finishing up Revelation as we go into Christmas and celebrate that next week. Now, Advent is broken into weeks. It's traditionally three weeks. Uh, I mean, it's four weeks or sometimes even five weeks. This happens to be week three of Advent, and each week has its own focus, kind of its own theme, so to speak. Uh, and week three is traditionally uh, joy and peace. Peace and joy is the theme of week three as we move into, into the Christmas uh, week then. And the scripture that a lot of people pull out for this, it's, again, it's kind of traditional. I just want to read it to you. It's Matthew chapter 2, verses 10 and 11. It says, when they saw the star they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. After coming into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell to the ground and worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they presented to him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Now again, that is a celebration of the joy of the first coming of Christ. They didn't even know the fullness of what was about to happen. They just knew that it was reason for joy. And so that's the first advent, Revelation focuses on the second advent or the second coming of Christ. So with that being said, we conclude. It's our last chapter. And I want to ask a quick question. So 22 chapters. It's been 20 weeks because we doubled up on a couple of them. But I want to ask, who has been here? Anybody here been here for every single message? Okay, a couple. Who have been here for about three-fourths of the messages, just give or take? Okay, half of them? of them? Who here it's their first one? It's your first time. Okay. All right. I want to encourage you to go back and and listen to the messages on our website because there's so much in this book. It is so rich and it's not at all what the vast majority of people think about it. But when you started, whether you've been here once or, or the entire thing, Did you anticipate the depth that you would get, the learning that you would get through it, and and how exciting it would be? I know, to be honest with you, I was going to teach it, and I didn't anticipate the depth. There is a scripture that kind of talks about this I want to share with you. It's 1 Corinthians 3.11. It says, And I, brethren, could not speak to you as spiritual men, but as to men of the flesh, as to infants in Christ. I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, for you were not yet able to receive it. That's Paul talking to the church in Corinth that I needed to just feed you spiritual milk because you weren't ready for meat. You guys are a bunch of meat eaters right now. I want to tell you, you are meat eaters. And as a gift, a celebration, we've got guys coming around with some treats for you guys. Because you guys... Our meat eaters. (laughs) That's okay. You guys can sit and chew and crinkle your wrappers and do all that during the service. Guys, congratulations and thank you for sticking with us because this, this type of teaching, this depth of teaching on the scriptures is not for everyone. It's not for everyone. A lot of people are not used to that. But I I just want to commend you um, and thank you for sticking with it. And I just hope that you've gotten out of it what what the Lord has given to me. So that being said, let's get going. You can chew and listen at the same time if you want. We're going to jump in. Now, again, Revelation, it's not a scary book about war and suffering and pain and and tribulation and wrath, yes, all those things are in there, but it is a hopeful, hopeful book. And for the last time, I'm going to read Revelation 1-3, and it says, Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy, and heed the things which are written in it, for the time is near. You're blessed if you read it. You're blessed if you hear it. And more importantly, you have to heed it. Heed it means take it to heart and let it change you. Let it change how you look at things. Let it change how you live your life. That's what heeding something means. So my job is to take that and make it clear. And tonight, we've, we've spoken through all the, all the theology that there is, all the imagery that there is. And so there's not a lot new in the ways of theology or imagery here tonight, although there's a little bit. But we're going to try and put it together and make sense of the whole thing. You should know, you know, if you read scripture, you can't read one verse or one paragraph or even one chapter, much less one entire book, and get a feel for everything that's going on. You have to read things in context. You have to read before and after. And if the more you can read for context, the better in terms of understanding. So we're going to talk about this a little bit. I want to kind of quickly, I say quickly, but I'll do it as quickly as I can, recap the entire book of the revelation of Jesus Christ up to this point, okay? So this is the Notes version for those of you who might have missed a few, right? First of all, it's written by the Apostle John, okay? The Apostle John, he's at this point, at the point where he wrote this, he's the last surviving apostle. He's an old man, He's an old man at this point. He was the the youngest of the apostles. Now we find him. He's an old man. He's exiled, house arrest basically, on the island of Patmos. Okay, it's an island, not very big island, pretty much rocky. It's where a lot of people were just exiled there to just keep them. You you didn't need fences or walls because you weren't going anywhere if you were exiled there. He was exiled there for preaching the gospel in Ephesus. He was told repeatedly, stop what you're doing, stop what you're doing, stop what you're doing, and he refused. He refused. He said, I cannot stop preaching the gospel. Therefore, he was arrested by Emperor Domitian and exiled on Patmos, which in itself is an act of God because typically they would just martyr you. They would behead you or they would kill you for doing that. In fact, he was exiled, which gives us the opportunity to read the revelation that the Lord Jesus gave to him. It's amazing. Emperor Domitian, was, he was a tyrant. He was called a tyrant among tyrants. He was one of the worst of all of the emperors in terms of what he did to his own people, what he did to Christians, bad stuff came. Some serious, serious persecution was about to rain down on Christians. Those who professed Christ were about to go through some serious stuff, specifically the seven churches, the seven churches that this book is initially addressed to. Those are the churches in Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamos, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea they were about to need some serious encouragement to hold on. Because he knew what was going to come their way, and they were being told, hang on, hang on. I know it's bad, but hang on. You can do this. Now, each church was struggling with their own issues. They all had their own issues, whether it was pride or false teaching or, or um, <sighs> adherence to doctrine so much that they forgot to add love back into the gospel of Jesus. So they weren't all struggling necessarily with sinful things, but they were struggling to maintain a balance, balancing what the word says with the gospel, the good news of Jesus, which is about joy and forgiveness and grace. And they were having a hard time balancing that. It's subtle how they were straying away from the teachings of Jesus. Subtle, but very, very serious. It would have been way easier for them at that point just to renounce everything and just pretend like they weren't Christians. But they weren't doing that. They were holding on in the middle of everything. They were holding on, refusing to compromise their faith. And they are told, again, in the beginning of this book, persevere, persevere, hold on, hold on, and you'll receive the prize. And then John is taken in the spirit To this scene in heaven, and he's shown what this scene in heaven looks like. We see elders uh, worshiping before the throne. We see multitudes of angels worshiping before the throne. We see angels flying, singing, Holy, holy is the Lord God. We see this wonderful scene of just worshiping the Lord in heaven. And then we shift to this scroll, this scroll with seven seals. Each seal being opened up, and as it's opened up progressively, it reveals a judgment of God. It reveals a new wrath of God among those who are rebellious, those who are refusing to come to Jesus. And these judgments increase in intensity as we go, increasing in intensity, not in an effort to punish them, in an effort to get them to turn to Jesus, in an effort to realize that Hey, what we're doing isn't working. A mountain just fell on us. This isn't working. Who can we turn to? With the hope there, the prayer being that they would turn to Jesus. But even then, even then, many refuse. And then we see at some point, those who are in Jesus, meaning those who know Jesus, are raptured. Raptured means taken, taken, snatched away, literally snatched away as if they were a prize, and taken to heaven. The dead first and then those who are still alive. We'll talk about that more here in just a minute. We'll see the rise of the Antichrist and the false prophet who try to force everyone to get the mark of the beast or starve. Take the mark or starve. And many, many refuse to do that. We see the forces of the Antichrist defeated at Armageddon and tossed into the lake of fire. We see Babylon, the spirit of Babylon, actually taken a millstone around its neck and thrown into the sea, gone forever. Heaven and earth then are taken away to make room for the new heaven and earth, or the new Jerusalem and new earth, as you will. Jesus then reigns on the throne with Father God walking among his people. A full circle of God's original intent from the Garden of Eden, that that the devil tried to snatch away, that that the devil ruined back then, or thought he did, has now come full circle. New heaven, new earth, new paradise, God's people walking in communion with him. Full circle. So this week, this week, that's your recap. This week, chapter 22. I'm going to read it to you. again, I use the New American Standard. If you have that version, follow along. If not, you can follow along in yours, but it'll be a little bit different. Just some of the wording will be different. But let's get into it. It's 21 verses, Revelation chapter 22, verses 1 through 21. Read like this. Then he showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the middle of its street, on either side of the river, was the tree of life. Bearing 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. There will no longer be any curse, and the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it. And his bondservants will serve him, and they will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. And there will no longer be any night, and they will not have need of light of a lamp, nor the light of the sun, because the Lord God will illumine them, and they will reign forever and ever. And he said to me, these words are faithful and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, sent his angel to show to his bondservants the things which must soon take place. And behold, I am coming quickly. Blessed is he who heeds the words of the prophecy of this book. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed me these things. But he said to me, do not do that. I am a fellow servant of yours and of your brethren, the prophets, and of those who heed the words of this book. Worship God. And he said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Let the one who does wrong still do wrong, and the one who is filthy still be filthy. And let the one who is righteous still practice righteousness, and the one who is holy still keep himself holy." Behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me to render to every man according to what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter by the gates into the city. Outside are the dogs and the sorcerers and the immoral persons and the murderers and the idolaters and everyone who loves and practices lying." I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The spirit of the, and the bride say, come, and let the one who hears say, come, and let the one who is thirsty come, let the ones who wish to take water of life without cost I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues which are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his part from the tree of life and from the holy city, which are written in this book. He who testifies to these things says, Yes, I am coming quickly. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you all. Amen. Mm. Good stuff, right? Let's take a look. Now, let's try and take that in context of everything else that we've been learning throughout all the first 21 chapters, and let's try and make some sense. Let's jump into some scripture here. There's going to be a lot of scripture. Some I'll read. Some we'll put up there. But go with me. Revelation 22.1. Then he showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb. If you remember last week, it opened up saying, and there's no longer any sea. We talked about there not being any sea, and I believe that's because a sea is no longer needed. Seas are the source of fresh water, the source of life-giving water through evaporation and that whole cycle. Now, the water, everything that's needed to sustain life flows directly from the throne. It's no longer needed. No other source both gives and preserves life. Revelation 22, 2. In the middle of its street on either side of the river was the tree of life, bearing 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. A couple things to look at there. The tree of life, this is the same tree of life that we see back in Genesis 2 and 3 where it talks about the tree of life. Being in the middle of the Garden of Eden, not the, not the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the tree of life, the very one that sustains life. And the idea is, bearing fruit every month, there's no longer any winter. There's no longer any season of need. Remember, historically, they had to, as winter approached, you had to harvest everything, bring it into the storehouse, because winter, no matter where you were, was going to be a lean time, and you needed to be able to just hold on. The point here is that there's no more just hold on through the lean times. There are no more lean times. It's all blessing. It's all abundance. It's all everything that you would need. The idea there of healing, where it says uh, the trees were for the healing of the nations, that word there in the Greek is therapia, where we get the word therapy from. But what it means really is the reversal of the physical condition. So it's not just making you not sick. It's reversing the condition. And that's what he's talking about here. This tree will not only bear life and sustain life in abundance, but it will literally reverse the physical condition of what's going on with all the nations. That's going to be awesome. I don't know what that looks like, but when we see it, I know it's going to be awesome. Then jumping down to Revelation twenty two eleven it says, Let the one who does wrong still do wrong, and the one who is filthy still be filthy. And let the one who is righteous still practice righteousness, and the one who is holy still keep himself holy. There's a whole line. One of the reasons that I put this up there is there's a whole line of theology that essentially uses this to say, Don't worry about those who are still on earth and who aren't living correctly because they're a lost cause. If they're sinning, let them sin because their fate is sealed anyway. There are a lot of people who believe that that's what that means. That is absolutely not what that scripture means. What it means is you'll reap what you sow. Now, remember, he's talking. This isn't in the middle of the, of the rapture right now. This is beforehand, and John is being told that you need to spread the word. Whatever you're doing is going to be what you reap in heaven. You will reap what you sow. Proverbs eleven eighteen says, The wicked earns deceptive wages, but he who sows righteousness gets a true reward. They've been told that over and over again in all kinds of different ways, all sorts of different scriptures point to that idea, and this is what he's talking about. We are never told those who are on earth who are sinning, they're a lost cause. Leave them alone. We're not ever told that. Now, again, like I said, there's not a whole lot of new theology in this chapter, but let's look at some of the main themes throughout the book in an effort to kind of tie everything up here, right? We're told several main points that really follow all the way through the book of the revelation of Jesus Christ. Number one, we're told over and over again that Jesus will come quickly. Right? It says he will come quickly. Revelation 22.7, <clears throat> And behold, I am coming quickly. Blessed is he who heeds the word of the pro- words of the prophecy of this book, echoing all the way back to chapter one verse three that says virtually the same thing. Revelation 22:12, "Behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me to render to every man according to what he has done. And one more, 22:20. 20, he who testifies to these things says, "Yes, I am coming quickly. Amen, come Lord Jesus." So we're told he is coming quickly. Let's take a quick look at that word quickly. Okay? Quickly, a lot of people think mean they think that it means he's coming tomorrow. He's coming very soon. He could come tomorrow. We'll talk more about that. But that word quickly is the Greek word tako, and tako means without unnecessary delay. I am coming without unnecessary delay. Doesn't mean there won't be a delay. But it means he's not somewhere else and we'll lose track of time he will come as soon as the time is appointed without any unnecessary delay he will come okay so with that coming when is Jesus coming When is the second coming going to be? That seems to be a major sticking point on people, theologians especially, who really study the eschatology of the end. Eschatology just means end times studies, right? Those people who study that get really hung up on the timing of when Jesus is going to come. And I want to clarify at least what my view is. Now, three main views, pre-tribulation, mid-tribulation, post-tribulation. Who here has not heard of that? term in at least some context right most of us have do we really know what it means and have we really thought it through there are well well respected scholars who fall down in each one of those camps and they can document it and they can explain their reasons for it and it all makes sense so I'm not going to say because this is what I believe this is what it is but I'll tell you why I believe it first I want to read to you this is a great scripture that kind of encompasses the whole rapture idea, the second coming of Christ. Let's talk about this. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 to 18. I'll just read it to you. So just listen to what it says. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep. That means dead. So that you will not grieve as the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again... Even so, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. means if you've fallen asleep as a follower of Jesus, you've died knowing Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first, then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Again, you can, you can believe 100% that that's how it's going to happen, but still, when? At what point in this tribulation process is this going to happen? A lot of that depends on your definition of tribulation. So let's go there for a second. A lot of people believe in the classical, if you will, definition of tribulation, meaning basically how the Bible says, at some point, all these things will begin to unfold, okay? And that's the beginning of the seven-year tribulation period. So it hasn't happened yet. Some people believe in that. Some argue that this tribulation period began back in, in the times of the Roman Empire, if not even before, that it's been going on, this tribulation. They talk about Nero and different emperors fulfilling a lot of these things that are talked about in the tribulation. And they take that seven-year period that it repeatedly says, and they say that's just figurative. We do some, number, some, some magic with the numbers and show that, that it's not really a seven-year period, that it's actually a different year period. They, and they use it to, to support that theory. If that were true then any rapture that would happen from today till whenever would be a mid-tribulation rapture, okay? I believe in the pre-tribulation rapture of the church, okay? And I'll tell you why. Here's why. I believe, number one, God loves us. God is not going to put us through needless pain and suffering, okay? That's just knowing God's character. But let me back it up even more. God has a precedent of removing his people from harm's way before displaying his wrath. And I'll show you some precedent in the Old Testament. First of all, if you are not studying the Old Testament along with the New, if you're not looking at Genesis and Isaiah and Ezekiel and all the prophets, if you're not looking at the Bible as a whole and you're just jumping forward to the feel-good New Testament part, You're missing so much because everything from the very first word of the very first verse in Genesis backs up and supports and fulfills what we see happening later on in the New Testament through Jesus. It's not something people say, well, a bunch of guys got together in about 300 AD in one of those councils and they just decided, oh, we'll put this in and we'll put that in and we'll just decide how we want people to act and that's what we'll put in the Bible. Many, many people believe that. That is so so short-sighted. If you don't take the time to study and see how things put together, you will have no concept of how absolutely divine the wording and the flow and the words in here have to be. For this to be without error in every single thing that it says is nothing short of miraculous. There's nothing but God that could have orchestrated that. Please include the Old Testament in your study. But let's go back. God has a precedent of removing his people from harm's way before displaying his wrath. Let's look at Noah. Noah's family before the flood, right? Noah's family. Genesis 7-1 says, Then the Lord said to Noah, Enter the ark, you and all your household, for you alone I have seen to be righteous before me in this time. Meaning everything else was messed up, but Noah and his family were righteous. So Noah's being told, Get your family Get on the ark. We're going to save you. You're going to be the seed for the next thing. Let's go to Lot's family. Let's go to Sodom and Lot's family. Genesis 19, verses 12 and 13 says, Then the two men, these are two angels who were sent to scout the town, basically, to find out if there was anybody righteous in this area at all. Then the two men said to Lot, Whom else have you here? A son-in-law and your sons and your daughters and whoever you have in this city Bring them out of this place, for we are about to destroy this place, because their outcry has become so great before the Lord that the Lord has sent us to destroy it. These angels are being told, go in and just level that town, because there's nobody in there. But then they find Lot and his family to be righteous before the Lord, and they're, being, and they're telling him, get your family and get out, because we're going to level this place. A few verses later in 1922 says, hurry, Escape there, for I cannot do anything. This is the angel speaking. I cannot do anything until you arrive there. Therefore, the name of the town was called Zoar. This is, he's saying, can I, just, can I take my family and go to the next town? Zoar just is a word that just means insignificant. There's nothing significant about the town. He's just going to go over there and hide out with his family. Bottom line here, they can't destroy it until he leaves, until the righteous leave. Here's one that ties them all together. Luke 17, verses 26 to 30 says, And just as it happened in the days of Noah, so it will be also in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating, they were drinking, they were marrying, they were being given in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. In other words, they're just going on with their lives till the flood came and destroyed them all. It was the same as happened in the days of Lot. They were eating, they were drinking, they were buying, they were selling, and they were planting, they were building. But on the day that Lot went out from Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. It will be just the same on the day that the Son of Man is revealed. See, God has a precedent of taking his people out of the way, taking them to safety. And there's other scriptures that point to that. These are what we call types and shadows of the final judgment, okay? types and shadows. Type is just a, it, it's, it's not a Greek word, but it essentially just means it's an example. It's an example of something that you're going to see. A shadow is interesting. What's a shadow? If you look at a shadow, a shadow, when the light shines on something, it casts a shadow. And that shadow has a lot of the characteristics. It might have the shape. You might even be able to look at it and tell what it is that's casting the shadow, but it doesn't have any of the detail. Okay. So it's foreshadowing, if you will. It gives you you enough to go on to know what's happening, but not the details, because the details in this instance are not important. The the details are obscured, so to speak. Now, remember, a lot of biblical prophecy, in fact, most biblical prophecy, is meant to be a signpost to help us understand that there's nothing new that God hasn't planned for. Everything that's happening is something that God has foreseen and he has planned for, okay? Okay? So, that's the rapture. Let's go back. Let's go back now to where we were. Again, we're told that Jesus will come quickly, right? We're also told repeatedly that the time is near. The time is near. Revelation 1-3, that's the one we read all the time, right? I lied when I said that it was the last time I was going to read it. One more. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and heed the things which are written in it, for the time is near. Revelation 22.10, and he said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Okay? He'll come quickly. The time is near. Then we're warned repeatedly that we won't know when that day comes. So those people who think they got it figured out down to the day and month when this is going to happen are ignoring Scripture. And it's not just revelation. It's all over the place. Second Peter 3.10 says, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burnt up. That's Second Peter. Matthew 24.44, For this reason you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not think he will. I like that. When you do not think he will. That means different than you don't know when he'll come. Specifically, when you don't think he will, that's when he's coming. Luke twenty one, thirty-four, be on guard so that your hearts will not be weighed down with the dissipation and drunkenness of the worries of life, and that day will not come upon you suddenly like a trap. Repeatedly we're told that. Then we're told to persevere and receive the prize. Through all this, no matter what's going on in your life, hang on, persevere, receive the prize. Revelation 2, 7, going back to the beginning, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Revelation 3, 5, He who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments, and I will not erase his name from the book of life. And I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. Revelation 3, 21, he who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. Persevere, 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 and receive the prize. Finally, then, we're promised something very comforting. It's not through anything that you can do. It's not through anything that you can do, but it's what he has already done. That should be cause for an amen, church. It's what he's already done. We don't have to figure it out. John 16, 33. These things I have spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. Obviously, Jesus speaking here. In the world you have tribulation, but take courage. I have overcome the world. Jesus has overcome. 1 John 4, 4 says, You are from God, little children, and have overcome them because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. See, Noah, Lot, even Moses, Abraham, all the prophets, they had warning. They had warning. Angels appeared to them and spoke to them. God appeared to them, spoke to them. They had warning to persevere and hang on to this. We're not going to have that same kind of warning because, church, we've already been warned. We have received, this whole book is our warning. So if you're waiting for an angel to come from heaven and tell us now's the time to get right, it's not going to happen like that. We have been warned already. You can't wait for the signs to begin. You can't do all of your eschatology study and go, okay, from my calculations, I've got a couple more years before I really need to get serious about this relationship with Jesus. Church, you've been redeemed. You've been set free. But the question is does your heart know it? Does your mind know it? You have been redeemed. You have been set free. You have been found righteous before God. Does your brain know it? Are you living your life like that? Are you living your life like you've been set free? Or are you still trying to figure out how to get right with God? I hear from people all the time, I'll I'll start coming to church, but I just got to get some things in my life in order first. Church, you can't solve the puzzle to get right with God. Do you know why you can't? Because you don't get right with God. You are made right with God. Thank you for that. Amen, absolutely. Let me read to you. scripture about this. Now, the first part's going to be familiar, but I'm going to go a little bit farther than sometimes you hear. Little-known scripture, John 3, 16. Read the first part along with me, or just recite it. Most of us know it, right? Many of us do. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. And then it goes on, though. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. This is the judgment, that the light has come into the world. And men love the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. That is so comforting. Worship team, you guys can go ahead and start heading up. So as we near Christmas, next week is our, is our Christmas service, right? Right? It's important that we keep our eyes focused on the right things. And as we think about all that we've learned and all we've gone through in the book of the revelation of Jesus Christ, everything that we have gone through, we need to be focused on the right things. And I have a hint for you. It's not about what's under the tree. It's not about what's under the tree. It's about the greatest gift that's ever been given. And if you Confess that Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior. You have already received that gift, that gift of eternal life through Jesus Christ. It's about your relationship with Christ and the relationship of those that you love and care about. See, we're still here. Jesus has not come back yet because there's still work to do. How do I know that? Because of all the scripture that we read that people use to try and figure out what the timing of this whole thing is. Pre, mid, post-tribulation rapture. Here's the one that really, to me, tells me everything I need to know. Matthew 24, 14 says this. This gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations. And then the end will come. Jesus gave us the great commission to go forth and make disciples, share the gospel throughout the world. We can start in our own backyard. We can start in our living rooms. We can start with our family that comes over for Christmas. Do you want your family to be in heaven with you? Do you want those who you love and care about, family or not, to be in heaven with you? If you do, our job is clear to share the gospel of the kingdom. It says preach it. You don't have to be a preacher. Share the gospel. And then the end will come. And until that happens, we're just waiting for this to happen. Very last scripture of the entire book. The very last scripture. Says this. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you all. Amen. Amen. So we're going to pray now. And then we're going to go into communion. Communion, I think everybody here knows how we work it at the cross, is self-serve with juice. Gabe and I will be serving wine up here. But let's pray that God uses us to not only share the gospel, but that we personally are able to take these words and heed them. I mean, let it change us. We have to be open to that. So would you pray with me? Father God, we thank you, Lord, that throughout this entire book of the revelation of Jesus Christ, a very misunderstood book. God, you give us nothing but hope. Seen through the filter of of the knowledge that you are graceful and you are merciful and you love us and you have always made a way for us and you want nothing more than for us to be in heaven with you. God, you have made a way and this book tells us the way. So we're not left to try and figure anything out, Lord. You've already figured it out and you've taken into account account our failings. You've taken into account our stubbornness. You've taken into account our thick skulls and our poor memories and our lack of, of knowledge of scripture and our lack of spending time with you and all of those things that we would tell ourselves that we're not doing right you already thought of that and you made a way through your son Jesus. So Lord, we thank you. We thank you for what you have taught us through this. We thank you for what you have done for us and we thank you most of all for your son Jesus. And as we move into a time the next couple weeks of celebrating and focusing on him, Lord, we just pray that we don't lose sight of what it's all about and get caught up in the world. So, Father, we thank you, as always, for your grace and your mercy. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, guys.